Welcome to the Crime Jar Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Crime Jar Podcast. This is your host, Alma Noir. Thank you for listening. Before I begin, keep in mind that listener discretion is strongly advised, as this podcast contains graphic descriptions of gruesome crimes, adult language, and material that may be upsetting to some. All cases have been investigated using public content, and all links are available in the episode's show notes. Today, in the Crime Jar, I bring you episode two, The Muse Girl. As an additional warning, please note that this case contains a child victim, so please keep this in mind. On the night of the 20th of June, 2006, a black and teal sporting bag was found alongside of the Meuse River in Rotterdam South. The bag had the words Colorado Super Batters on it, and a batter on the side. The people who found it dragged the bag to shore, and curiosity got the best of them. Inside, they found a human leg. The police was called and immediately they knew that if there was one bag with the body part, they were to expect more bags to appear. Specialized divers were called in to look around the area to try and locate any other suspicious bags. None were found that day. When they investigated this first bag, it was a model that had 3,500 in circulation and was found to be sold on markets and fairs, so there was unfortunately no trace as to who could have purchased this. Two days later, three crew members on a ship saw a suitcase trolley floating down the river. They were well aware of the recent news saying a leg had been found in the same river they were in, around the same area too, and thus they dragged it on board. They opened it and a bundle of bright orange tie wraps fell out. Though they only saw garbage bags inside, they could smell the scent of decomposition. The police was immediately called. The garbage bags were kept closed with more of the orange tie wraps and white nylon cord that had many nautical knots. Once the police removed that and preserved the evidence, they opened the bags. What they found inside was a nightmare come true. It was a human torso. When they investigated this trolley, they found that a local of 16,000 had been made in the Netherlands and actually was provided as a gift by the Dutch National Lottery for people who purchased a yearly subscription. They were able to locate 15,000 of the bag's owners, 11,000 of which had gotten that subscription. But unfortunately, this too seemed to be a dead end. It wouldn't be until July 13th that another bag was found again. This time, people saw a bag floating around which eventually, due to the low tide, got caught on something along the shore. Again, the police was called. The third travel bag was found to contain another human body part, and this time it was a human head. The police tried to get more information on this bag going as far as visiting the Bag Museum in Amsterdam. But they were unable to find a lead. The body parts were all badly decomposed and it was believed they had been in the water from a few days to several weeks. All three bags had tiles in them to weigh them down and everything inside had been tied with rope and tie wraps. DNA confirmed what police already suspected. The three body parts belonged to the same person. Using these different body parts, forensic experts were able to create a victim profile. The victim was described as a 16 to 17 year old female, 
1.68 centimeters or taller, dark-skinned, and she had size 42 feet. These are European measurements. Her feet were considered to be overly large and she was extremely tall for her age. She had apparently never been to a dentist, which is why they believed her to be a possible immigrant. Unfortunately, her DNA did not match any database. The police was unable to find any dental records that matched the victim, and it seemed that there were no witnesses. No one had seen anyone throw any bags into the river. Because they did not have an identity for the victim, and all body parts had been found in the same river, they gave her the name Mas Maisha, or Muse Girl. By this point, the police was at a dead end. Luckily, they did have one thing that could possibly help. They had the victim's head. The state of the head was so deteriorated that the girl was unrecognizable and could not be matched to any missing cases. There seemed to be some blunt force trauma on the head, but none of the injuries were fatal, so this was excluded as the cause of death. They could not even show a picture of her to try and get someone to possibly recognize her, which is something they do in the Netherlands when necessary. So instead, the Dutch police contacted British expert Caroline Wilkinson. Caroline is a British forensic anthropologist. She is best known for her work in forensic facial reconstruction and has been a contributor to many television programs on the subject. She also regularly assists the police in the UK, Norway, Sweden, Ireland, Abu Dhabi, Malaysia, just to name a few. In the Netherlands, she was already known for her work on another case at Meisje van Nulde, or the girl from Nulde. They asked for her assistance in the case, and she didn't hesitate, so the Dutch police took the victim's skull and took it to Scotland, where Caroline was working at the time. She created a reconstruction of what the victim would have looked like, and on October 3rd, an episode of Opsporing Verzocht was aired. This is a Dutch TV show similar to Crime Watch, which was created by the Dutch prosecution in collaboration with the police and the TV channel Avotros, in which they asked for public assistance with cold cases. In the episode for the Buse Girl, they provided the details of the case, and as soon as the reconstruction was shown, the police started to get the calls with the tips on the victim's identity. A lot of the people commented that it was a girl who was known for her large feet, which gave the police hope that they had finally found her identity. One person called saying that it was her half-sister. She and her mother were called in to provide DNA, and after the results came in, it was confirmed that the body parts belonged to 12-year-old Jessica Gomez, native from Cabo Verde. Jessica, written with a G, had not been reported missing by anyone, and when investigators started looking into her family and her past, they found some concerning information. When looking into Jessica's mother, they learned that she was living in Rotterdam, but was not aware of her daughter's disappearance. In the 80s, Gabriella met a man named Antonio in Italy, and they had a son. Years later, Jessica was born. When Jessica was three years old, they moved to the Netherlands, as he had found a job, and he told Gabriella that she would also find a job. Instead, she stayed at home and he started meeting up with his ex-wife again, a Dutch woman. He actually brought her home to taunt Gabriella until she couldn't take it anymore 
and left him. She could not stay in the Netherlands as she was undocumented, and she and Antonio agreed that Jessica should stay with him in the Netherlands. Eventually, she returned and lived with Jessica's brother and two half-sisters. Jessica would visit her mom once every two weeks. Before her murder, Jessica had asked her mother if she could come live with her, and her mom said yes, as she got the feeling that Jessica feared her father. When she asked her daughter, Jessica would say everything was fine. After each time that mother and daughter were together, Antonio would aggressively ask Gabriela what Jessica had told her. He would also ask Jessica what she had told her mother. Gabriela was never told of her daughter being missing. She called on a day in June, wanting to speak to her daughter, and found that Antonio was extremely angry. He made up some excuse and Gabriela never got to speak to her girl. This made her weary, but at that time there was nothing she could do. After further investigation, it was discovered that Jessica and her family were well known with social services. They found that Jessica was abused regularly by her 46-year-old father, Antonio Nascimento Gomez. They lived together in a house and were isolated from everything and everyone. At one point, Jessica's stepmother was in the picture too, getting abused by Antonio and in turn, abusing Jessica. The couple often had fights and the police would be involved. On one occasion, the fight was apparently in public while they were out, and it was noted that they had left Jessica at home, all alone, at night, for hours. Back in 2001, he has threatened his ex-wife. It appeared that his actual words were that he would kill her and dismember her so that no one would find the body. When detectives found out about this, Antonio was immediately arrested for the murder of his daughter. He refused to talk apart from saying that he didn't do it. Talking to the man was not easy due to the language barrier, but the police provided him with an official translator so he would be able to understand what he was being asked and he could provide answers should he want to. He never did. Now that the police knew who the victim was and they had a likely suspect, they could continue the investigation more effectively. This investigation taught them that the bag found on June 20th, 2006, the one with the words Colorado Superbatters on the side, which by the way is a fake name, was actually the bag that Antonio used to bring to work. He worked as a cleaner in a petrol station and the bag was confirmed as belonging to him. The trolley bag where Jessica's torso had been found in was the one gifted for the lottery subscription. And when they checked the list for his name, both him and one of his girlfriend's name were on the list of subscribers. The tiles that had been used to weigh down the three bags were matched and found to be the same tiles that were located in Antonio's backyard. When the police spoke to neighbors, one person recalled a lot of noise coming from the house next to theirs in the days and weeks before Jessica's body parts started appearing. They heard banging, clanks, and even a chainsaw. They actually commented that it sounded like a butcher shop, which, considering what actually happened, is especially horrifying. Forensics looked into the Gomez's home and investigated thoroughly for five straight days. There was a bit of concern since they knew Antonio was a cleaner and thus would have probably done a good job at removing any possible evidence. Using luminol, they managed to find blood under the bathroom sink. However, since it is a bathroom, 
They couldn't assume that it was Jessica's, or that it had anything to do with the crime. It may have just been blood that came from a cut while shaving, or even period blood. They found cuts on the linoleum floor, right next to the drain. And when they opened the drain, they found the most incriminating evidence. Inside, they managed to find bone fragments. Their hypothesis was that 12-year-old Jessica had been killed, or at least dismembered, in the bathroom. A taxi driver eventually spoke up and told the police that sometime in June 2006, he drove Antonio to the Maritime Hotel, right on the shore of the River Meuse, with heavy trolleys. The next day, another taxi driver picked him up from there, but this time, he had no bags with him. A few days later, the very first bag was found opposite that same shore. The police noticed one more thing at Antonio's home. There were several items with nautical knots. In particular, there was a box filled with Christmas decorations which had been tied together with white nylon cords and some very peculiar knots. The exact same knots as they found were used to tie the tiles and body parts together. They also found more tie wraps, but these were not orange. At the start of the investigation, the orange tie wraps that were found in the trolley were confirmed to be cable labels. Cable labels are used underground by workers to distinguish the different cables they need to work on. Since the police did not know how Antonio had obtained these, they actually decided to follow another lead. They found out that back in June, a group of workers from Rotterdam had been doing cable works in Amsterdam. Investigators started following the foreman, and since there was no suspicious behavior, they picked him up for interrogation. They found out that once he returned to Rotterdam, he had stopped to clean his car at a petrol station and had thrown the leftover tie wraps away. Now, I don't think you need me to tell you which petrol station this was. But yes, you guessed it. This petrol station was one of the few where Antonio worked. They believe he saw these tie wraps in the trash and decided to keep them. Whether he had already planned on killing his daughter, we will never know. During the interrogation with Antonio, he kept denying his involvement when presented with everything they had on him. One police officer had an idea and frantically walked around the police station looking for some rope and a box. As soon as these items were found, they asked Antonio to tie the rope around the box. It turns out that the nautical knot he made was identical to those found in the bags containing Jessica's body parts and those found in Antonio's home. By now, they had enough evidence to bring him to trial. When presented with all of the police's findings, Antonio still maintained his innocence. Due to the suspect's medical history, Antonio was sent to a mental institution called Peter Ban which is quite well known in the Netherlands. The next quote is taken from Wikipedia. Quote, the Peter Baan Center is a forensic psychiatric observation clinic in Utrecht, the Netherlands, operated by the Ministry of Security and Justice, where suspects of crimes in the Netherlands are observed to ascertain whether they can be held wholly responsible for their suspected crimes, unquote. So he was checked by psychiatrists and it seemed that he was a little more talkative than with the police. It appeared that he was very haunted at night and he was quite traumatized. When asked about Jessica, he said he did not know what happened 
and that he occasionally had blackouts. So, when asked if he had done anything to her, he said it was possible, but he just didn't know. They found Jessica's father to suffer a mental disorder that impaired his judgment and diminished his capacity. The trial started on 26 November 2007, and even though he was there with his translator, he refused to confess in any language. This refusal to speak up was almost included by the prosecutor as some sort of evidence of guilt, as they believed that if he was innocent, surely he would say so. It was definitely something they took into consideration when deciding on this conviction. On December 10th, 2007, Antonio Gomez was sentenced to eight years in jail, followed up by TBS for the murder of his daughter, Jessica. Quote from Wikipedia. When suspects are found guilty, but performed their crimes while suffering from some sort of psychiatric or psychological disorder, they may be applicable for involuntary commitment. In Dutch, this is Ter Beschikkingstelling, or TBS, which means to be held at disposal. This is a special measure for, for crimes which are committed under psychologically abnormal circumstances. The purpose is to treat the perpetrator rather than punish them and work towards their reintegration into society. The TBS measure is usually enacted after about one-third to half of the prison sentence has been served, though this practice is now, as of media 2010, under review. The duration of TBS terms are decided upon by the treatment staff in co-accordance with the Ministry of Justice and can last decades. For this reason, perpetrators do not always cooperate with the observations of the TBS clinic they are sent to." Unquote. TBS is unique to the Netherlands. The exact cause of Jessica's death was never established, though it was speculated that a possible cause of death was a fatal dose of her father's medication. Unfortunately, due to the victim's large feet, the police did not think to ask at primary or elementary schools to see if any of the students were missing. Had they done this, they would have discovered that Jessica's last day at school was June 7, 2006, several weeks before the first bag was found. The school had contacted the school attendance officer who told them Jessica was transferred to another school. This turned out not to be true. She had been accepted in another school, but she had never shown up. When contacted, Jessica's father, Antonio, had told social services and the schools that they were on vacation in Mexico, a complete lie. It wasn't until a facial reconstruction was shown on TV that the people involved realized that the muse girl that everyone had been talking about was really 12-year-old Jessica Gomez. There was a huge outrage in the Netherlands due to the failings in all areas. Social services, doctors, schools, Everyone knew that Jessica was being abused and isolated by her father. Everyone knew that there was something wrong, but since there was no communication between any of these different institutions, they didn't know how bad it truly was. In 2005, Jessica had walked away from home to an aunt's house, but she called the police, who took Jessica to a youth center. She was there only for a short while until she was sent back home. A few months later, she would be dead. If the Netherlands learned anything from this horrible case, was to improve things for abused children and ensure that all instances involved 
communicate and take action in cases of child abuse or child neglect. Antonio appealed his conviction, but it was during the appeal that he passed away of natural causes on the 11th of May 2009, almost three years after he brutally killed and dismembered his daughter. This was a blow to prosecution and police as they hoped that with the improved medication that he was getting and the TBS clinic, he would eventually talk and they would get answers as to what exactly happened to his daughter. Unfortunately, despite several intense search actions with divers, helicopters, cadaver dogs, and even sonar boats, no other bags were ever located, and so the rest of Jessica's body was never found. Thank you for listening. I hope you didn't know this case yet and were just as horrified listening to it as I was investigating it. All cases have been investigated using public content and all links are available in the episode's show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate, and review wherever you have listened to it. It would help me so much to get this podcast out there. Remember, you can find the Crime Dirt Podcast on social media, so make sure to follow me on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. To send me your feedback, comments, advice, or cases that you think should be added to the jar. You can find me as the Crime Jar Podcast. This is also where you'll find me picking a number out of a jar to choose a new case to cover. I will be back next week with a whole new episode you have hopefully never heard before. Until then, stay safe and thank you for listening.